Due to the graphic nature of this cold case, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of assault, murder, stalking, and sexual abuse of minors. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. A nervous energy fills Woodbine Junior High on a Friday in 1999. The students in Ms. White's homeroom class jiggle their knees and spin their pencils. It's almost the end of the school year. Between that and the heat wave rolling through Toronto, none of the students can focus. The bell rings, the kids pack up their things and spill into the hall. But 15-year-old Colin Braddock lingers for a moment. He needs an excuse to talk to the girl who sits next to him. She's smart and outgoing, with a sassy streak that always makes him smile. He waits for her to pick up her backpack. She brushes her long, dark hair out of her face and flashes him a thousand-watt grin. Colin's heart jumps a little. Finally, he works up some courage and asks if she has any plans this weekend. She tells him she's starting a new part-time job on Saturday. Colin is impressed. She's so ambitious. That's one of the reasons he likes her so much. He congratulates her and says he's excited to hear all about it on Monday. But the next time Colin enters Ms. White's classroom, the girl's desk is empty. I'm Carter Roy, and this is Cold Cases, a Spotify original from Parcast. Every Monday, I tell you the story of a crime that went unsolved for years. We'll explore a vast array of offenses from burglary to arson to murder. Some weeks, forensic breakthroughs will solve long dormant cases. Others will still be left searching for the truth. Today, we're following the story of Toronto teenager Sharmini Anandavel, who in 1999 went to work at her very first job and disappeared. It turns out this job wasn't what everyone thought it was. And decades later, police still think it's connected to the identity of her killer. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new Moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Moneymaker. Play the game and you could win money, up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. Search To Die For in your podcast app to follow the show. There's a new class of blockbuster drugs. Drugs like Ozempic. They're changing bodies. And all of a sudden, just the weight starts falling off. Fortunes. It just got too expensive. They're just 
bank breakers. And industries. There was a lot of excitement. There was a lot of skepticism. The impact of these drugs from business to health is just beginning. From the journal, Trillion Dollar Shot. Find it in the journal feed wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you're the new kid at a school, or it's your first day at a job, or you're at a party where you don't know anyone. Most of us have felt like this at some point. It can be really disorienting, like suddenly your sense of self or your instincts are thrown off kilter, and you're not as sure of anything anymore. I remember backpacking through Uganda and pulling into a market for lunch one day and realizing that everything I knew about how to be in a public place didn't seem to apply when I was the new person. And for those who arrive in a new country for the first time, that's the experience they can feel. It's sometimes hard to adjust to a different culture, different customs. And it can be really hard to figure out who to trust. Kathis Anandavel doesn't have much to do on June 12th, 1999. It's about 9 a.m., and the 13-year-old has the entire Saturday ahead of him. His parents and his older brother, Dinesh, are out for the day. Normally, he'd hang out with his older sister, 15-year-old Sharmini Anandavel. But she's busy. It's the first day of her new job. He hears her getting ready, pulling on a t-shirt, snapping her purse shut. She's clearly excited. A job means responsibility, maturity, and most importantly, some spending money. Her graduation ceremony is in two weeks, and she's been talking about buying matching shoes for her dress. She wants to do this for herself because she knows the purchase would burden their parents. The Anandavels immigrated to Canada a few years ago, to escape the brutal civil war in Sri Lanka. They found a strong Tamil community in Toronto, but like many immigrant families, they often find it hard to stay afloat financially. So Sharmini started looking for a job a few weeks ago. Eventually, a neighbor told her about a part-time gig, and that's where she's going today. Kathis watches his sister lace up her shoes and check her blue-painted fingernails. He isn't sure what exactly her new job is or what she'll be doing, but still, he knows his sister will be good at it. She's good at everything. She gets high grades and has awards in public speaking and traditional Sri Lankan dance. Not to mention, she's vivacious and loves helping others. There's basically no job she'd be a bad fit for, as long as she's on time. Charmini rushes out of the apartment, and Kathis follows her to the elevators. She's holding a pair of earrings and tells him she needs to return them at Fairview Mall before her shift starts, which means she needs to catch the bus. Before stepping into the elevator, Charmini reminds Kathis to do his chores while she's gone. He grins and says he won't, but they both know he's joking. It's the last time. He sees his sister. Mr. and Mrs. Anandavel return to the apartment sometime later that day. They're immediately tense because it's about to get dark, and they thought Charmini would be home by now, but she's not. Like their youngest son, the Anandavels don't know much about Charmini's new position. 
She told them she'd be answering phones at an office near the intersection of Lawrence Avenue and Don Mills Road. She promised to leave a more specific address before she left that morning, but it seems like she forgot because her family can't find it. This is out of character for Charmini. Not only is she a responsible kid, but she's deeply connected to her family. She never leaves the house for long and hasn't even been to a sleepover before, so her parents start to worry. But then they remember their neighbor, the one who found Charmini the job. 23-year-old Stanley Tippett lives below the Anandavels with his wife and infant son. Everyone knows Tippett. He's a fixture of the apartment community. He doesn't have a typical nine to five. He tends to work odd jobs, so he's seen around the building more than most of the other adult residents. Because of this, he's close with the kids who live there and has sort of become the building's babysitter. Something else about Tippett, he was born with a rare condition called Treacher-Collins syndrome, which affected the development of his face and ears. He wears hearing aids at all times and has a soft, high-pitched voice. When children ask about his facial irregularities, Tippett tells them that he used to work for the police. He says that a bomb exploded in his face and that's why he looks so distinct. In fact, Tippett often tells people he's in law enforcement, even though that's not true. He takes the lie pretty far, too. Sometimes he patrols the grounds with a nightstick and wears a jacket that says police on the back. He got it from a flea market. Once, he even tried to arrest someone. He was reprimanded by real officers after the building supervisor called 911. And despite all this, neighbors generally seem to like Tippett. He helps out the kids in the building whenever he can. He gives free judo lessons, and as I mentioned earlier, he's the one who found the job for Charmini. So that brings us back to the Anandavels, rushing downstairs to knock on Stanley Tippett's door. No one answers. Turns out, Tippett doesn't actually live there anymore. He moved two weeks ago. It's hard not to panic. It's getting dark. They're scared Charmini got hurt somehow, and the only person they can think of who might know where she is, is gone. The Nondevels call 911 and report Charmini missing. The police homicide unit is brought in almost immediately. It's a good thing authorities are taking this so seriously right away, but the homicide department? It feels like a big escalation. Homicide's involvement could either be assigned the case as a priority or that there's something about all this that makes them fear the worst. Investigators fan out across Toronto, trying to retrace Charmini's steps. Cathice told them about the earrings, but they find no record of the transaction at Fairview Mall. There's no sign of Charmini on the security cameras either. But as news spreads about her disappearance, someone says they saw her sitting on a bench outside the mall around 10.30 the morning she went missing. She was alone and looked like she might be waiting for someone. This complicates things. Fairview Mall is only about a 10-minute walk from the Anandavel's apartment. 
and Charmini theoretically took the bus, so it probably didn't take her that long to get there after she left home at 9 a.m. So why was she still at the mall about an hour and a half later, especially if she'd been in a rush to get to her new job? Of course, it's not unusual for teenagers to stretch the truth. Even a well-behaved kid like Charmini could have a rebellious streak, So investigators also know they can't rely on the family's information alone. They call up her friends and classmates from Woodbine Junior High. Many of them remember Charmini mentioning this job. A few even said she promised to give them more details about the position in case they wanted to apply. According to them, the job wasn't some boring gig where you spend all day answering phones or blowing a whistle at the swimming pool. It was more exciting. They say Charmini was recruited as a sort of undercover operative for the police. Supposedly, she'd be paid to sit in public areas and watch for drug deals or suspicious characters, then covertly notify authorities if she witnessed anything illegal. And the pay was good. $12 an hour, about one and a half times the minimum wage. According to one person, she'd even get a free cell phone. So, yeah, investigators know any real law enforcement agency wouldn't put a minor in harm's way like that. Given the fact that the job was allegedly undercover, they think it could have been a lure. And if Charmini was supposed to be secretive, well, that could explain why she may have felt like she had to be careful about telling her parents too much. Detectives wonder if Charmini kept paperwork, notes, or anything that could tell them where she was headed that day. So they go to the Anandavel's apartment and search her room for clues. And when they look around Charmini's bedroom, they find one. Hi, listeners. I'm Vanessa Richardson, host of Serial Killers. Like many of you, I'm fascinated by the darker side of humanity. What causes someone to develop such deadly desires and why they decide to act on them? For the past six years, I've been able to explore these curiosities weekly, tapping into the mental states of the world's most notorious killers, examining their backgrounds and habits, searching for answers. If you haven't had a chance to check out our show, there's truly no better time to dive in. With hundreds of episodes to binge and new ones released weekly, Serial Killers is the perfect podcast for any avid true crime fan. Follow the Spotify original from ParCast, Serial Killers. Listen for free only on Spotify. While searching Charmini Anandavel's room, investigators find a piece of paper an application for something called the Metro Search Unit. The form is typewritten and official-looking, littered with legal jargon. To a 15-year-old without work experience, it would probably look legitimate. But to investigators, there are a few things that are strange about it. For one, if it's related to the job Charmini agreed to, it's odd that it would still be sitting in her room. Wouldn't she have turned it in to her new employer? And then, the more important red flag, there's no such thing as the Metro Search Unit. Not in the Toronto Police Department, at least. 
Detectives inspect the form more closely. And there's at least one misspelled word. There's no logo or official letterhead. Many of the standard fields in a job application, like employment history and professional references, are missing. There isn't even a field for the Canadian equivalent of a social security number. Officers are certain the application is fake. They believe it was made by someone who wanted to look like a law enforcement officer. And at some point, investigators find out the Anandavels already know someone with a history of impersonating the police. At 4.45 a.m. on June 13th, less than 24 hours after Charmini went missing, police gather outside the apartment of their main suspect, Stanley Tippett. He just moved with his family to Oshawa, a mid-sized city outside of Toronto. Officers bang on the door, and when they're let in, they search the home and take Tippett to a local precinct for questioning. Journalist Michelle Shepard of the Toronto Star covers this case from the get-go, and she's able to get an interview with Tippett. So while we don't have the actual police report from this investigation, he eventually tells Michelle all about it. By his account, he informs investigators he doesn't know anything about Charmini's disappearance. He hasn't seen her since late May. That's when he gave her a job application. Not for the Metro Search Unit. He's never heard of that. He says the application was for the local pool. They need staff for the summer. It's a reasonable story, but if Charmini was actually applying at the pool, she probably would have told her friends about it. Clearly, she didn't do that. The detectives cut to the chase and asked Tippett where he was on Saturday morning when Charmini disappeared. As per Michelle's reporting in the Toronto Star, this is when Tippett reveals that he was near the apartment complex that day. He drove past it around 9 a.m. when Charmini was leaving, but he claims he didn't see her. As for why he was in his old neighborhood two weeks after moving, he has an explanation. He makes money mowing lawns, and a few of his clients live in the area. Tippett says he got to his first job at 9.30. Once he finished up, he noticed something was wrong with his car. After taking a look under the hood, he made a stop at the Fairview Mall to clean his hands. This happened around 10.30. Remember, Shermini was also seen at the mall around this time. But again, Tippett says he didn't see her. Finally, he says he stopped to buy oil at a gas station at Lawrence Avenue and Don Mills Road, which is also where Shermini said her office was located. From there, he went to a few more jobs, then headed home in the evening. The investigators are highly suspicious. Tippett's route mirrors what little they know about Charmini's. But that's all they have. Suspicion. Without reason to hold him at the station, officers tell him they'll check his alibi, then release him. They do, however, put him under heavy surveillance. For at least a week, they watch his every move. They don't seem to notice anything unusual. Tibbet also appears to have a bulletproof alibi. 
Everyone the police speak to backs up his story. His clients say he was on time, and he has a receipt from the gas station. Garage workers also say he went there to replace his engine. Officers check the areas near Tippett's work sites, but find nothing suspicious. A search of his apartment doesn't reveal anything incriminating either. Detectives decide to continue their investigation elsewhere. But before doing that, they've got one more place to check. Tippett's car. If he did so much as give Charmini a ride, well, there'd probably be DNA evidence. But when they get back to his apartment, the car is gone. Turns out, Tippett got rid of it right after he was questioned. He claims that he had no choice but to sell it to a scrapyard for the absolute minimum price, about $10, even though he just paid for extensive repairs, which cost about 1000 The investigators rush to the scrapyard, but luckily the car is still intact. They open the doors and begin inspecting every nook and cranny. It's clean, without any unusual DNA material. But when officers open the trunk, they see the liner's been ripped out. When they ask Tippett for an explanation, he doesn't provide one. While the authorities in Oshawa try to make sense of Tippett's behavior, the Toronto police are still at a loss for Charmini's whereabouts. It's not for lack of trying. Her face has been plastered on newspapers and TV screens for weeks. Volunteers give out hundreds of thousands of flyers with her description, and her photo gets taped up in malls, schools, and gas stations. The Anandavels call investigators daily, hoping for an update. While they wait, they leave their apartment open to friends, relatives, and members of the press. As visitors filter in, the family asks every guest to leave their shoes in the hall, as is tradition in Sri Lankan households. The pile is largest at night when they hold an hour-long prayer vigil. They light incense and sing, begging for the 15-year-old's safe return. On some of these nights, Charmini's mother stays awake at all hours, holding her daughter's graduation dress. At one point, Charmini's father has a vision of his daughter sitting on the floor with her arms wrapped around her knees. This spectral form appears grounded and safe. He takes that to mean that she's alive. The Anandavels later consult a psychic who agrees she's still out there. But as the days pass without any credible sightings or leads, the police seem to focus on the opposite scenario. They search ravines and ditches, marshlands and streams. Still, friends and loved ones don't give up hope. On June 24th, about 12 days after Charmini disappeared, the principal of Woodbine Junior High visits the Anandavel's apartment. He brings them... Charmini's yearbook. She looks poised and confident in her black and white portrait. The silly blurb under her photo says that when she grows up, she'll either be a lawyer or need a lawyer. 
A few days later, Charmini's classmates graduate from Woodbine. At the ceremony, they light a candle and read poems in her honor. All the while, Charmini's silky graduation dress hangs in a closet, unworn. Her friends eventually start their summers, but her family continues to pray. Weeks pass. The heat wave breaks. The flyers in the mall warp, yellow, and frail. The memory of Charmini permeates the Anandavel's apartment. Eventually, it becomes too much to handle. They move to a new unit in the same building, but leave a note on their old door, just in case she comes back. That October, Charmini's brother, Cathis, goes to school for the first time since June. He's been scared to return. But his friends are happy to see him. They even surprise him with a binder of Pokemon cards. When he gets home that day, he heads to his family's new unit on the second floor. Then his stomach sinks. There's a mass of shoes in the hallway. Something has happened. Not long before Cathis got home from school, detectives came by the Anandavel's apartment. They said that a pair of hikers found a human skull near the East Dawn Parkland Trail a couple days ago. After checking some dental records, Authorities confirmed it's Charmini's. This answers one question that's been haunting everyone for months. Charmini is dead. But unfortunately, that's all anyone knows. East Don Parklands isn't far from the Anandavel's apartment complex, but it's deeply forested and easy to get lost in. Charmini's remains were found in a shallow grave on the banks of the river there. According to forensic experts, she'd been there for months, maybe since the day she vanished. But it's hard to gather much evidence. The humid summer sped up decomposition, and animals may have further damaged the body. Then, when the heat wave ended and the rain started again, the riverbank flooded. Countless pieces of evidence were likely washed away. Other than the skull, investigators find a jawbone, a tuft of hair, some bones, and a ripped piece of a striped t-shirt. They also find a few fingernails painted blue. It's impossible to tell how Charmini died, but it's hard to imagine that she wandered into the woods on her own. Investigators think someone lured her there on purpose. Someone she trusted. Probably whoever offered her a job with the Metro Search Unit. Since there's no DNA evidence found at the scene, police still can't be sure who this person is. But only one person is known to have told Charmini about a job in the spring of 1999. Only one person's movements on June 12th matched Charmini's exactly, and only one person got rid of his car right when the authorities started looking into him. 
For his part, Tippett thinks police are targeting him because he has a disability and is physically distinct. As far as he's concerned, the only crime he's guilty of is being different. And it's true that all the evidence police have is circumstantial. They still need to find something more solid. Until then, they can't make an arrest. The Anandavels eventually relocate to Ottawa, but they drive back to East Dawn Parklands so they can put flowers near Charmini's final resting place. Other people leave offerings there too, candles, fruit, and photos of Charmini. Even though the family has left Toronto, the city hasn't forgotten about them. Local detectives haven't either, but time hasn't yielded any new DNA evidence or eyewitnesses, so they're still hamstrung. Although they have learned a little more about Stanley Tippett. Before he met Charmini, the police had been called on him multiple times, and not just for impersonating them. When he was about 17, a teenage girl told authorities that Tippett followed her off the bus, grabbed her from behind, and threatened her with a pellet gun. He then forced her to lie on the sidewalk. She thought he was going to rape her, so she told him she was HIV positive, a quick-thinking lie. Tippett let her go and was eventually convicted of attempted robbery. Then, about a year after Charmini disappeared... A grocery store clerk alleged that Tippett was stalking her. He wasn't charged with anything, but he was banned from the store. Now, in 2004, Tippett and his family live in Collingwood, Ontario, about two hours northwest. It's a growing family, too. In addition to his son, he eventually has five kids. But he continues to get in trouble with the police. He keeps lying about being an officer and makes a romantic advance on one of his neighbors, a young single mother. According to court documents uncovered by reporters at the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, this neighbor then catches him peering into her windows and parking his van outside her house. Tippett also continuously offers to drive her places. When she refuses... He retaliates. He calls child protection and falsely reports that she's neglecting her son. Eventually, the woman contacts the authorities. Tippett pleads guilty to criminal harassment, though he later claims he was actually the one being stalked. He's given a suspended sentence. And in 2005, he moves again, this time to Peterborough, Ontario, roughly 80 miles from Toronto. Even though he's on probation, Tippett continues to act in disturbing ways toward women and girls. At some point that year, Tippett meets a 21-year-old woman who is a recent immigrant, like Charmini. He sees her at a job fair and introduces himself under a fake name. He tells her he knows a manager at the YMCA. They're hiring and she should fill out an application at his house. The woman gets a bad feeling about this and says no. Two days later, 
she runs into Tippett again at a Taco Bell, where she's applying for a job. He explodes in anger, saying she should take the position at the YMCA. He shoves a form at her, and she reluctantly fills it out, but she doesn't realize it's completely fake. The form asks for personal information, like a phone number and birth date, but it doesn't ask for a social, just like the application found in Charmini's bedroom. Tippett calls the 21-year-old multiple times over the next few days and even leaves a birthday card on her doorstep. He also offers to drive her to the job interview at the Y and tells her it's a special position he's recruiting for, one that would work directly with law enforcement. The woman is rightfully dubious and finally decides to call the Y directly. After she explains the situation, they call the police. Officers arrive at Tippett's house in Peterborough and search his car. They find an array of weapons, including knives and a hammer, plastic sheeting, rope, duct tape, and zip ties. A probation officer later describes it as an abduction kit 101. Tippett is charged with criminal harassment again. And again, he claims he's innocent and that this was an unfortunate set of coincidences. He says he gave the woman a fake application because he felt like she was his competition at the job fair. He has an explanation for all the items in his car, too. The hammer was to fix his vehicle's trim. The plastic sheets were for cleaning. The zip ties were to set up his kids' portable TVs. The rope was meant to tie a futon to the roof of his car. The knife was for that, too. When he's brought to court, the judge doesn't believe any of this. Eventually, Tippett pleads guilty to criminal harassment in December of 2005. He's sent to prison for two years. The whole thing sounds familiar, right? Well, Toronto authorities likely think so, too. After all, Tippett is still considered a person of interest in Charmini Anandavel's murder. But as disturbing as these parallels may be, they're still not concrete enough to prove Tippett had something to do with Charmini's death. Tippett serves his sentence and returns to Peterborough. It's 2008 now, and he's about 32 years old. Many authorities aren't thrilled that he's out. Based on his history, it seems like it's only a matter of time before he offends again. And sure enough, in August of that year, Tippett commits a crime that's more horrifying than anything he's been convicted of before. Please be advised, this involves the sexual abuse of a minor. If you'd prefer not to hear the details, please feel free to skip forward about one minute. On the night of August 5th, Tippett is driving home from Toronto. He told his wife he was there for kidney dialysis, but he was actually seeing a woman he met on an online dating site. In the middle of the night, he sees a pair of preteen girls walking on the side of the road. They're drunk and barely able to stand. 
He offers them a ride, saying he'll take them to a hospital. This is a lie. He drops one of the girls off at a park, then he drives the other more than an hour away and eventually stops near high school at about 2 a.m. Around this time, neighbors hear a child screaming and call the police. When the authorities arrive, they see Tippett's van take off. A few officers give chase, and others start searching the woods around the school. They find the young girl stumbling through the brush. Her shirt is shredded, and she has no pants or underwear on. She doesn't know where she is or what happened to her. Meanwhile, the van speeds away, leading the investigators on a high-speed chase. They're not able to catch the vehicle, but they do get a glimpse of Tippett's face. It's familiar to them, both because of its distinctive features and because he's been a person of interest in the Toronto area for years. The next morning, police arrive at Tippett's home. They arrest him for kidnapping and sexual assault. He insists he's innocent and that he was carjacked, but the police don't buy it. He's put on trial in December of 2009 and found guilty on seven counts, including kidnapping, sexual assault, and sexual interference. Soon after he's sent to prison, state prosecutors submit a request to designate him as a dangerous offender. Under Canadian law, a dangerous offender is someone who is extremely likely to harm others if they are released from prison. After the country abolished the death penalty, they added this label to their criminal code to separate out their most volatile and persistent criminals. According to the CBC, if the court decides that an inmate is high risk enough to be deemed a dangerous offender, there's a good chance they'll spend the rest of their life in prison. They can apply for parole, but it's hardly ever granted. The list of Canada's dangerous offenders is pretty short, with just over 20 people added per year. It includes many of the country's most brutal serial killers and sex offenders. And in 2011, Stanley Tippett's name is added to that list. He's sent to prison on an indefinite sentence. In 2018, he applies for parole and is denied. As of this episode's recording, Tippett is still behind bars and is unlikely to ever come out. If you're wondering whether Charmini Anandavel's name came up in Tippett's dangerous offender hearing, it doesn't. And as for whether Tippett has ever acknowledged his involvement in Charmini's death, no, he hasn't. But we have to acknowledge the obvious. There are a lot of similarities between her death and Tippett's later crimes. He appeared to target a specific group of people, immigrants and teenage girls, people who just arrived in the country or who were maybe taught to trust adults and authority figures. He called himself a police officer or a friendly neighbor or a good Samaritan offering some young girls a ride. But despite all we know or suspect, there are still essential pieces missing, which means that unless new evidence arises in Charmini's case, 
it's unlikely authorities will be able to prove who her killer was. As for Charmini's family, her younger brother, Kathisa Nondevel, is an adult now, and he understands the detective's frustration. But the thing is, he doesn't really care if Tippett is charged with the murder of his sister. A conviction won't bring Charmini back. Tippett is off the streets and unable to harm anyone else. His cycle of violence has come to an end. For Kathis, he has to trust that's enough. As for his parents, Elor Nyagam and Vasan Thamalar, they believe in reincarnation. Perhaps they feel that Charmini's energy is still present in the world and that her spirit is enjoying a new life now. She may look different from the confident teenager beaming in their family photographs, but she's out there somewhere. Perhaps Kathis also has this idea in mind when he reaches his next phase of life, parenthood. He welcomes his first daughter into the world and gives her the middle name, Charmini. Every once in a while, when his little girl laughs or smiles, he may be reminded of his intelligent, remarkable sister. Even if it's not technically reincarnation, it feels pretty close. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back next time with another cold case. For more information on Charmini Anandavel's murder, amongst the many sources we used, we found the CBC podcast Uncover Charmini extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Cold Cases and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Cold Cases is a Spotify original from Parcast with executive producers Max Cutler and Drew Cole. Our head of programming is Julian Boireau. This show is developed by Mickey Taylor. Our supervising sound designer is Russell Nash with Nick Johnson as our head of production and quality control by Spencer Howard. Brian O'Leary-Jones is our supervising editor and Derek Jennings is our writing lead. This episode of Cold Cases was written by Kylie Harrington, edited by Sarah Batchelor and Kate Murdoch, fact-checked by Bennett Logan, researched by Mickey Taylor, with sound design by Russell Nash, and produced by Aaron Larson. I'm Carter Roy. <laughs>